Welcome to the Smug Film Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Clark. With me today for a one-on-one is John D'Amico. Yo. And today we are doing a little bit of an update on his Green Brothers film and my film that I haven't really talked about, which I'll talk about later. And we'll just get into that uh, a bit later. But first, you know, we did a Green Brothers episode a couple weeks ago. That was actually recorded pretty much a while back, I guess. Yeah, that was... I want to say around Christmas, maybe? I guess we did record it around. No, it might have even been earlier because I think we had just ended production. Probably uh, November or something. Or... Yeah, yeah, a while ago, either way. Oh, yeah, so that's a little bit... vintage. Yeah, that kind of lets down the veil, so to speak. You know, sometimes we record these out of order or just whenever. But we're going to do a little bit of an update because it's been maybe five months or so since uh, you ended production on it. Yeah, around there. So what, what are you up to now with that? Well, we uh, hammered out a bunch of different rough cuts, started sort of paring down what we had, and uh, it looks real good. And then, you know, through the course of rough cuts, you uh, you decide on some minor reshoots, some scenes here and there. So there are a few extra little scenes that we want to add in. There's a couple of side characters that we want to give them an extra scene because we're kind of interested in them. And there's some sort of, a lot of it's very, like last time we pretty much, the episode was pretty much just talking about the Bronx, which is such a big part of the movie. So there are some sort of peculiarities of the area that we wanted to highlight. So there's some extra scenes coming in about that. But we kind of got hammered here in New York with snow after snow oh, yeah. after snow after snow. So we're uh, waiting now for the snow to thaw to shoot our reshoots. But in the meantime, uh, we're, we're whittling what we ha- have down now into as tight a package as you can get it. We're starting to research uh, music rights, which I haven't done before on any of my other stuff which is kind of exciting gonna get some songs in there and we really want sort of a 70s soul sound for the whole movie uh so we've been looking at a couple of those tracks and some of that sort of stuff and some contemporary stuff that has that kind of sound and we've been pretty lucky because a few of the artists are off label so you can just deal with them directly you don't have to go through nice a label and a a couple of the ones that we really want are uh on the same label which is kind of helpful i mean we're, we're still pretty early into that side of it because we don't want to you know lay any money down or nail any tracks down and then we do another cut of the movie and you know it's gone but uh that's that's a fun little area because it's independent filmmakers i feel like you don't really get to do that much no that's not waters i get to play in yeah it's sort of like christmas to just start putting it together and be like wait i actually this movie this music can actually go in and stay in i'm not gonna have to take it out for the for the screenings yeah i mean it's like you know, the reason why movies don't all have Wes Anderson or Martin Scorsese-esque soundtracks is because it costs a lot of fucking money. Yeah, the... Uh, it can be bigger than your whole entire budget for your film. For example, Clerks, the uh, music rights were, I want to say, at least double the uh, right production budget of that one. And uh, Mad Men, that one episode where they used the Beatles song, I think it was Tomorrow Never Knows they used, $250,000. I can't it was like historic. My... I mean, nobody had ever gotten the rights to the Beatles. Yeah. The Beatles, for some reason, are just like a famously difficult thing to get the rights to, which is why even in all the movies about them, you never hear the Beatles. Right. You hear covers. But when Mad Men finally got them for the first time since they were still a touring band, it was, I think, $250,000. And a lot of times it's just, you know, the studios being the studios. You know, Paul McCartney himself just seems like kind of like a dude who'd be like, yeah, sure. You know, like he just seems like a guy who wouldn't care much. Yeah. But you you forget that these people don't actually own these things. 
Like you would assume yeah. that somebody would own something. I mean, we that could they do created. a whole episode of just about the copyright of the Beatles stuff. Yeah. All the, you know, Michael Jackson buying them out from under McCartney and all that kind of stuff. It was a really interesting sort of thing. So what's your runtime right now for the film? About an hour 45. Uh, we want to keep it in that sweet spot of 90 minutes to maybe an hour 45. But yeah, so we're in, we're in that phase of production now. And we're starting to look at, um, the production company is starting to look at like its next projects and all that kind of stuff, which is sort of an exciting place to be in. We have a lot of other ideas and um, some are more ambitious than others. You know, some would be bigger projects than this. Some would be smaller, but everybody we worked with Almost across the board, everybody we worked with on this movie was really wonderful, and we'd love to work with them again. Nice. So um, I like the John Ford model of filmmaking, where when you find people you like, you just keep them around, which is sort of, I think, one of the guiding principles of even the smug film thing, too, just sort of keeping your net together. Yeah, absolutely. You have to feel really lucky when you find someone that you really like working with, and you can't just assume that everybody's going to be like that, you know? You got to recognize it as the blessing that it is. I yeah. like I like directors that that realize their blessings like uh, DeSico with Sophia Loren and Mastroianni and, you know, these people that just they find their person and they just they'll go anywhere with them. Yeah. Yeah. No, we were so lucky with cast and crew. I mean, I uh, I was just at the movies yesterday with one of the actors from the movie. You know, we just he's still in the city. We, we went to see 71, which, by the way, was a great movie. It's this British movie about uh, Belfast in 1971 and a British soldier who gets uh, accidentally abandoned by his unit. So he has to get out of Belfast alive in the middle of the Troubles, which is, I always love those um, man on the run type movies. This yeah, of, yeah. They always have like not a lot of dialogue and just really... Like Apocalypto was, was a pretty good one of those. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the genre kind of started with The Most Dangerous Man mm -hmm. or The Most Dangerous Game, which is wonderful, but... The high point, I think, really was The Naked Prey with Cornell Wilde in 66, mm. I want to say, which is, I always wanted to do an article about surprisingly modern classic films, and Naked Prey is number one. Oh, yeah. Like, you look at Gravity, Apocalypto, any of those kind of movies, they all are very much in the shadow of that one. And this one was, too. It was a really good movie. And, like, The Raid, too, like that kind of vibe. Yeah. Yeah, I would describe 71 as halfway between Hunger, the Steve McQueen one, and uh, The Raid. Nice. Just a little of both of them. But there have been developments with uh, one of your long-running projects, too. Yeah, I just uh, I just finished a script for what will be end up being my third feature-length film, which is Bed. It's a two-person film. It's uh, just a guy and a girl. My friend Mike Pantozzi and his girlfriend Kathleen Littlefield. I've always wanted to work with the two of them together just as a couple in a film. And I had the idea for something where it would just be a couple spending a day in bed together and just, you know, kind of like a waiting for Godot or Oleana kind of thing where it's just two people talking for a very long time. One setting, one room, literally. And they're the kind of people that you want to build a film around. They're just great people. And I finally finished the script of that, which took me way longer than I ever would have anticipated. I thought it was just going to be like a quick thing. But um, it ended up being like I was writing a play, you know, like every word started to matter pretty quickly. Yeah, you're directing your first play now. Mike, I, I met him when I was doing a play, right? He Yeah, he auditioned he, he, for... Uh... He didn't exactly audition because that run never materialized. Oh, right. yeah. It was going to be the second run of a play I did at Fringe Festival that um, just the timeline didn't work out. So we didn't do the second run of it. But yeah, Mike was, uh, he was probably going to 
be uh, one of the leads. He was a really cool guy. We met at um, Starbucks in Union Square, I think it was. Really, really good kid. You know, he's one of those people where like, no matter what age he is, you're just going to call him a good kid just because he has that great enthusiasm. Like he, he makes me excited for my own projects. You yeah. know? <laughs> like, <laughs> but directing your first play, which is kind of what I'm calling this for you is yeah. that's interesting for you because um, a lot of what you have to do at the end of a movie, you have to do at the beginning now. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of just a different uh, workflow. Yeah. It's very front loaded. You know, I like a lot of the uh, plays turn movies. Like I like Neil Labute's stuff a lot and this is more in line with that sort of thing i like the idea of theater and the idea of plays more than i end up actually exploring that as a genre well maybe this will get you into it i mean there's so much great theater going around the city i mean it's it's a it's a new world for me yeah it's an exciting world it's all you know there's these great plays and just like the basements of bars and churches all over the city and it's really a creative space now yeah and the idea like um i guess i should reiterate the idea of it because I didn't explain fully is that we're going to be shooting it all in one day too. It's about a couple that spends a day in bed together, but we're also shooting the entire film in one day. So we're planning out everything at a time as far as the shots and lighting and all that. It's all going to be figured out. We're just shooting it all in one day. So they're going to know everything by heart as if they were doing a play performance, but it's just going to be in a apartment. So and you have to, then you have to find the beats and the, and the life before you even get to set that first day. Yeah. And which is hard, I think, for, for film people. Yeah, that's why it took a really long time to write. I go back and forth between theater and film. I probably, I think, have spent more time in theater than in film. You're in for something interesting because you got to come with your guns loaded in a way that you don't in film. But then when you're done, I'll bet your post is going to be real easy. Oh, I can't wait for that. Dude, I mean, rehearsals took me such a long time to edit. Yeah, because that's where you find the story then. Yeah. Yeah. And this one, it's just, I like the idea of I'm doing essentially the opposite. Because, you know, I mean, I'm not a big coverage guy. I like to find the shot that works and use it for the duration that I need to be using it, that sort of thing. So it should be very, like, intuitive, easy editing. Maybe, you know, maybe the color stuff will take time. But the actual cutting together of it, I should have a, a cut of the film very soon after I shoot it. As long as I just encode the footage and stick it in there. How are you going to run rehearsals? Do you know yet? Um, I'm leaving a lot of like the memorization and stuff up to them because they're a couple anyway, and they can just rehearse in bed literally, which is pretty awesome. And, you know, I'm going to steer them in the right direction. I feel like what I've written on the page is pretty simple to do and get the vibe that I'm going for. Once I explain, like, I guess the vibe of the characters, they can probably just run with it and then You're I'll check it on them. You're not going to do sort of directed rehearsals, though, to help them sort of find the color of it? Very few, I think. I mean, a lot of it is just, like, on the page, like I said. Like, I use... Be interested to see how that turns out. You might end up, when you're involved, start doing that more because it's... It could. It's... A, it's I'm open to it. I'm I mean, skeptical of it a lot of times, but it really is sort of the backbone of a production type of a movie you know a a theatrical type one yeah because you get you get you get different things out of it than you do out of the way the way a movie rehearsal generally works is a lot more blocking yeah a lot more of that but with theater you really your goal is to give the actors um the space to sort of just worm their way through all the lines Mm -hmm. just find out how they feel at every moment which is um i think it's very valuable yeah, there could be a bit of that. As far as the the way that it's written, 
Like I put italics on every word that I need them to dig into with the line. And as long as they dig into those words, then I'm happy. You know, I want to, I want to give them the freedom to find things beyond that. But it's like all the words that are like really key that as they're saying the lines, they need to just put a little bit more emphasis. Like that's all laid out for them. And like I was even because I'm not I've done acting, but I don't come from like a theater background. I was worried about like how much material I'm giving them. And like it, it even staggers me. Like I don't know how actors can memorize a whole like fucking play like that where it's just two people. Like I can't even wrap my brain about how you can even do that. Yeah, it's like the weirdest thing. I mean, can you imagine like playing Hamlet? Yeah, man. You just that's four hours pretty much of of you. Yeah. And you just memorize it. Yeah. But, you know, if it's a good enough show, what I found is that it's harder for people to memorize bad shows. Right. Because if it's if it's a good enough uh, piece of writing, it should all sort of everything should lead to the next thing. But I think like I, I found like if an actor has trouble memorizing something that like those are the passages that as the writer you want to like look at and be like, is there something wrong with the logic yeah. of this? Because I've had that, you know, pieces where it was just like. It makes sense when you're writing it, but when, when somebody does it, like it's it's not what they would think. Yeah. The finished script is like uh, I think 83 or 84 pages. Probably ended up being like an 80-minute movie or something. Love a good 80-minute movie. Yeah. I mean, that, that works for me for a day. We've talked about this before, but like I feel like Chantal Ackerman nailed that 70 minutes equals a day when she made um, <laughs> Jean Dielman. Yeah. Like she just figured something. Or even Jet 2 ll which... Yeah. Uh, it's like 70 minutes yeah. makes sense for a day. Because if you think of like a film as a day plus epilogue, you can understand why most movies are like 90 minutes because they're essentially a day plus maybe 20 minute, 10 minute epilogue or whatever. So I feel like she figured out the timing of that really well. And I'm kind of essentially sticking to that with this day that they spend in bed. What have you been watching to sort of prepare yourself for it? Mm, nothing in particular. I mean, I guess Deadwood. Just because, you know, that to me is very difficult dialogue. And I was looking at how actors handle it on that show. My my dialogue isn't nearly as difficult as that. But it was mostly like, there was a lot of like anxiety of how much I'm giving them to do. And feeling comfortable with giving somebody that. Because like, I'm, I'm used to like, like with Shredder, I would give people very easy scenes where it was like, all right, here are the beats. Here's the way it's written out. If we go in a different order than the actual conversation on the page, fine. It was improvisation as far as order of beats of things to talk about. Like I would be okay with like just jumbling that up as long as we ended up where we needed to end up. So this is a very meticulous project and I'm not used to that like every word being in that exact order and now I'm like really into it. Like I'm really like it became like an obsession where like every word had to matter. And that became why it took so long, I guess. Yeah. Do you do improvised stuff a lot or is it just sort of like a general sense of looseness? Cause green brothers, there's a lot of improvising, which was sort of new to me. And I actually really liked it. I like improvisation. I, I mean, that's like a lot of the YouTube stuff that I would do. Like when I was just starting out, like that's mostly improv based. And I just like the energy of that. Like once yeah. you create the construct for it to work, then you can go anywhere with it. I like that aspect. But like I said, with Shredder, there wasn't really improvisation per se. It was more like people could play around with the order of words and I would be fine with it because as long as these things happened in that scene, I was happy. So it wasn't like we went off on new 
into new areas we just sort of made yeah. it feel real as much as possible yeah what i did with green brothers a lot was um green brothers was very sort of um event specific you know like each scene there were there were certain moments where you had to had to acquire or lose something you know something like that there there are all these sort of like mini tasks within the scenes so what i would like to do sometimes is um just begin them or end them earlier or later than they happen in the script mm. so you know i would play a scene out and then just not call cut and just see what it would happen or you know you'd you'd pull the actors aside and be and be like just start this a couple minutes before it does on the page and you, you give them sort of motives and things to hit and just sort of see what happens and then i i really liked that i mean a lot of it was you had to have like a lot of mutual trust between everybody including you know like you had to trust like sound guy was going to be on on point you had to trust camera was going to be on point everybody kind of working as one but when you got it it really worked i remember there's there's one scene that i think is three lines in the script and it's just um it's near the end of the movie and uh it's it's just one character walks into a room looking for somebody else and when she doesn't find him she walks out and like scolds the other guy a little bit walks out and we did that and it it didn't really work the first time so I just told the actress to just, you know, say everything she wanted to say. And the the three lines ended up being, the takes were running like six minutes. Wow. Because they just had like a real, the two of them had a real like fight where they were bringing up all the stuff that they knew from the character backgrounds and all this and all that. And it, I, it was difficult to cut because I just, I had to shoot every uh, take of it from a different, very distinct camera setup. Mm. then weave between them and i ended up bringing it back down to it's probably like maybe 45 seconds footage now but i ended up with these like great like blocks of just improvised really strong really like vital and and aggressive uh acting pieces that's good for the dvd yeah yeah some of the scenes um the raw footage of them is is hefty sometimes it's really important to give that to the actors as just a a filmed exercise almost a lot of times, you know, when you're you're writing dialogue for people, you're leaving out so much of the backstory that the yeah. the actor is privy to as far as understanding their character that may not even be brought up in the film ever. Yeah, and, and you let them sort of come up with yeah. things too. I mean, there are things they had about their characters that I, I, they wouldn't even tell me. Mm. And as long as it worked, you know. Yeah, it got them, them where the they secrets. needed to get to, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I, I like the idea of the filmed exercise too because... I think the the trick to directing actors, ninety percent of it is just making them not feel pressure. Mm -hmm. Even when you're under like the extraordinary pressure of you know you've only got thirty minutes in the in the set and there's a plane overhead and this and that and you know you're on, you're over budget and all this stuff. If you just push all of that off their plates and let them feel like they're in a, an acting class all the time, you tend to get some interesting stuff. I think a lot of times people forget you know how many distractions there are when you're yeah. making a film. Like when you're watching a movie, you're not seeing the distractions, ideally. And a lot of acting is the ability to act under these very, very stressful, like, all right, now you got to do this right, 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 right now, you know? Like, and a lot of directing is putting all that on yourself and on your producers and mm -hmm. keeping it off the uh, DP, the sound guy, the actors, the production designers, yep. all, everybody who's got to be sort of a creative force, you just let them... Uh, feel like they're in a nest yeah which is so hard man it's very stressful for yeah it's a very stressful job directing i think for that reason because you you volunteer to take on everybody's stress on set 
Yeah. And do it in a way where you don't look stressed. You and know, the moment you yeah. start looking stressed, everybody else starts fucking up. The good side of that is that the day goes by really, really quickly. Yeah. So it's not like torture where like you're just under stress for like what feels like an eternity. No, it's like you blink and the day of shooting is over. Yeah, and you forgot to eat lunch and dinner. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's time travel. It's fucking crazy. <laughs> That's what yeah, and you just like. make these decisions that you forget you even made. Mm -hmm. You know, like at the end of the day, if you when, when we were doing some of the interior stuff, so at the end of the day, I would look at the sets and things would be moved around and, you know, like some of the windows would be taped up and all this stuff would be around. I'd be like, I don't remember doing this. Because <laughs> it's just you go in like a whirlwind and you just you yeah. move stuff where it goes and then... Once the camera rolls, time just stops and you let things take as long as they need to take. That's what's great about the, the shooting all in one day thing is that I'm just, it's going to feel like 10 minutes, you know, <laughs> now it's just going to condense in my mind. Have you given any thought to doing it all in one day, but two or three different times over different days, essentially like having a run of a production and filming all of it? I thought about it. I kind of, I don't want to go into it anticipating that. I want to put it all on the one day. If something horrible goes wrong, of course, right. I'll just do it. I'll just do it all over, you know? Yeah. I just think it'd be interesting because um, the energy would be so different on all those days. It would, but I don't want to give myself too much to work with. Right. You really you know? want to, this is like your uh, five obstructions movie. Yeah. I just want to, like, I know the day is going to be magical. I know great things are going to happen. I know unexpected things are going to happen, even though it's so tailored and meticulous. Um, I'm just really excited for it. And also, like, it's not going to be end up being 24 hours of shooting. It's going to end up being what would equate to, I guess, like six or seven hours of actual rolling. And right. then the rest is like, you know, prep and that sort of thing. What are you going to do for a crew? Pretty bare bones. Um, mostly, I'll probably need people as far as figuring stuff out ahead of time, you know. Right. That's probably the bulk of it. And sort then of like it, an office crew. Yeah. And like in general, like when I'm shooting stuff, I kind of treat it like, you know, if you're a painter and you have a painter's assistant and you have your model and stuff like I, you know, I like to be behind the camera. I like to be looking at the shot and figuring out the shot. I DP as I'm shooting basically. Really? Yeah. And um, like, I don't need somebody who has too much expertise. If I know the camera, if I don't know the camera, I need somebody with expertise, yeah. but if it's a camera, I know like the GH2 or the T2i ones that I just know, like where you can point it, how you can point it, what light it likes, what color it likes. Like, I just, I know these cameras really, really well. Then I just need somebody to be like, Hey, can you move that chair? Like just an inch. And like, they get the benefit of watching me work with a camera. And I sort of tell them what I'm doing as I'm doing it. It's almost like a, it's like a really fast internship. Basically you want, you and PAs. Yeah, I like that. That's funny. Yeah, I'm the opposite. I um, I hate being behind the camera or the monitor. I'm always buzzing around the set. I always have to, the AD or the DP always has to haul me back to the monitor. <laughs> and I'm the same on set as D'Amico, I am here. D'Amico, you're in the shot again. I don't, yeah, <laughs> I don't like wearing the headphones. <laughs> so the sound guy always have to like tap me to make me put the... You barely like wearing the headphones here. No, dude. yeah, it's, I just like, I, <laughs> I have to sort of lock myself into to the monitor yeah. with the with the conduit to the film sound because I, I just sort of buzz around and i you know like <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll go of... like whisper something to one actor and then like yell something <laughs> to another and like move something somewhere and then yeah. i'm talking to the makeup person and just instead like of like a, boom in the shot it's just amico in the yeah, shot I'm just all the time. sort of like hovering <laughs> behind stuff <laughs> well there's one shot 
I'm not going to tell you when it is in case when hopefully you people listening to this will be interested enough to see the movie when it comes out. But there's one shot <laughs> where I'm in the background of it just pretending to be an extra because I couldn't find a place for me behind everything else. Oh, man. So I'm, I'm sitting monitoring the shot just inside the shot. <laughs> <laughs> so immediately, as you said... I'm not, yeah, I'm not um, going to tell you where or when or even if it's an interior or an exterior just to... <laughs> Just so that nobody's looking for it. Yeah, I'm imagining Pee Wee Herman as the bellhop in Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Yeah. Where he's just standing off to the side, but not too far I mean, like, I'm not not looking at anything. My back's to everybody. It's just my back, but I'm I'm there. I'm in there. (laughs) It was such a small production that everybody involved winds up in the movie at some point. Nice. See, I like that. I like that kind of thing. Like, I think the second face you see in the movie is uh, the assistant director. Mm. Because she's a wonderful actress, and there was... um, one scene, uh, it's the first scene of the movie, and we, we needed an actress for it. And our, our first choice, uh, she couldn't do it because she was in Honduras, I think. So uh, I just had the assistant director fill in, mostly as an excuse to see her act again because I think she's really good. Mm. And all the all the producers are in there somewhere. Everybody's everybody's around in the movie who was is, who is on set. Yeah, one of my favorite like little bits of information, like trivia thing like that, is that in Rushmore, when he's getting the people to sign the petition for saving Latin, all the names on the sheet of people that signed the sheet are just all the crew members and like really? friends and stuff. So like, I love that as like a little That's shout great. out, like that little tracking shot of the names. It's like everybody just gets a little moment in the movie. Yeah, that's wonderful. I love that kind of stuff. Yeah. The thing about um, like finishing bed, you know, I, I knew that I was like two or three scenes away from it being done, but I still didn't know. You made the screenplay? Yeah, yeah. I I still didn't know exactly how it was going to end. Like I knew that I knew the last shot because it's important. I didn't know exactly how I get up to it. Yeah. And it was the thing like I always hear like the great advice of like if you're going to write a mystery, you shouldn't know who did it until the reader would know who did it. And I yeah, feel like, like uh, the big sleep where they were shooting the movie and one guy, I, w- I want to say a driver gets killed and the director didn't know who killed him, so he called and asked the screenwriter, and the screenwriter didn't know who killed him, so he called and asked the novelist, and the novelist didn't know who killed him, and they just never knew. That's Nobody wonderful, knows yeah. to this day. Nobody knows who killed him. Yeah, I mean, that was that's basically what I experienced with this, is that like, like I knew everything that was going on in the characters' heads, but I just didn't know exactly how it was going to come out for those two scenes right before the climax, or well, essentially the resolution, I guess it would be. And it was so great not knowing that because like I would try like a couple nights in a row. I was like, man, not really feeling it. And then if it didn't work, you took back. Yeah, I was like, all right, stepping this back a little bit. And then one night I was just like writing until 8 a.m. And it just all came through. And I was like, yep, that's the movie. That's That's what this movie is about. I I was working on the script for a long time and um, I I felt myself slowing down. So one night I was like, fuck it, I'm just not going to sleep until I finish it. And I finished the first draft at about 10 a.m. And I mean, it was the first draft, so it was terrible. But then I just sat down and I sort of moved the pieces where they needed to go. And mm. and uh, did you have the experience I did when you were writing it and sort of conceptualizing it and even filming it where um, everything you watched, you started to watch through the lens of like, all right, what good are you to my movie? <laughs> and you know, you like look yeah. for beats here and there and like things that you didn't think they did very well that you could do better and just like little like grist for your for your mill. Yeah, that happened a lot with Shredder and rehearsals, like especially with Shredder, like a lot of the look of Shredder 
was me doing everything, everything I could do to rebel against how people were using DSLRs at the time right. period. So I locked the camera down. I shot in actual black and white. I didn't do black and white in post. I changed it to monochrome in the camera. I was recording in black and white. Didn't move the camera at all. Yeah. You know, like a lot of just everything that became its distinct look was just me hating certain things that I was seeing. And then yeah. like once I made a list of all the things that I hated, that immediately became my style for the film. And it just, it lines up perfectly with the vibe of the film for me. Like it, you know, it's about people just playing acoustic guitar and talking and that sort of thing. And that just looks black and white to me because it, it sounds black and white. Like when I hear yeah. like rough recordings of, you know, it doesn't matter when it was recorded, whether it's like old blues or if it's just a kid in his, you know, bedroom. Right. Like just bedroom. the lo-fi sound. Yeah. Just, it looks black and white. It looks like slight and also like the slight grain of it like i wanted to use some high isos because i just wanted to do it all natural lighting yeah so the grain looked better in black and white than it did in color like in color it just looked like video grain in black and white it looked like this weird... you can also get away with less production design in black and white yeah because you inherently have a sort of different look so like if somebody sees like their lamp mm -hmm. if the movie's in color they'll look at it and be like you dicks but if it's in black <laughs> and white you know like They've never seen their lamp in black and white. It's, it's yeah, exactly. a different lamp now. Yeah, I never thought about that. But yeah, that's true. And for rehearsals too. I mean, it was a lot of just like what I wished a documentary was essentially. Like yeah. I just wanted there to be a documentary where it's just me watching Greg people. Greg would call it a bunch of footage. Yeah, it was literally. And I remember I talked to Greg like after he saw it. And um, like we went out to get burritos or something. And like I knew he'd seen the films. I was like, all right, so what did you think? Like what... And he was like, he, he almost looked like shell shocked by it. <laughs> it was almost like a shock to his system. Like he was just very sheepishly talking about it. And part of that was probably just, he didn't want to tell me that he didn't enjoy it. Yeah. But it did look like it affected him in like a endurance test for his <laughs> taste sort of way where he was like, well, like, yeah, it's the furthest I can picture from his taste. Yeah. He was like, so well, what did you mean by it? And you know, like, <laughs> it was just kind of adorable. And, um, that's one of those movies where like, I remember I was talking to Brad, like Brad had watched like five minutes of it because he was catching up on like movies of, that I made that he just never got around to watching. Like you watch Shredder first and they did rehearsals and five minutes into rehearsals, he's like, yeah, this movie's great. He's like, I'm on board. And I was like, that's, that's this movie. If you like yeah. the first five minutes, you're going to like the whole movie. It's like not, a, it doesn't let you down whatsoever as far as the aesthetic or the vibe yeah. of it, you know? So like, I just love these movies were like, you know, just in general, we're like, if you're, if you like the first five minutes, it's never going to let you down. Cause a lot of times I'm watching movies and I like the first half hour and then the rest lets me down. Like that movie chef, that John Favreau movie, the yeah. first half hour of that fucking movie is amazing. It is so well put together and he's such a great actor in it. And the surrounding characters are so, are just placed so well. The setting's great. The message is great. And then they go to fucking Miami and the film just goes weird. Yeah. And it, it never comes back. Well, and that like, reminds well, it, me. It's so sad. You what know? you're saying about Shredder was sort of your rebellion movie. I mean, my first feature, The Calm, which is unreleasable outside of galleries because of sound issues. Um, in a lot of ways, I made that one. That that was sort of a Twilight Zone type of story about um, three people, two men and one woman in a, in a deserted New York City and just like what they do and how they live. And... Um, a lot of ways it came together because I, I just really always loved post-apocalyptic stuff. And I always loved that sort of um, movies with a mystery that can't be solved. 
movies about how we can't solve some mysteries and just what that does to the human brain. That movie very consciously was me watching a lot of movies that certain things about them dissatisfied me and trying to fix it. And in some ways it worked and in other ways I would do things differently now. But like I had watched uh, like Target Earth and um, Dawn of the Dead and uh, uh, 28 Days Later and just the whole, I mean, I could, I could list probably 75 post-apocalyptic movies and TV shows I watched. And um, I would say 80% of them, what they did was for the climax, because the climax always has to be bigger than the rest of the movie, they started adding characters. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is the worst thing you could do to one of those movies about isolation. Yeah. Like, I Am Legend did it. That was it a kiss just, of death for yeah, that one. Yeah, it just really bothered me. And I, I wanted to see what would happen if you played one of those stories out to the end without adding people. Mm. And it was a whole set of challenges. And you start to understand why they always do it. Because it's hard to sustain that level of drama. And I think I still made, I made logical leaps in it that um, with more people I wouldn't have had to make just to sustain the drama. But it was really just sort of an attempt to keep that mood for as long as possible, that mood of just sort of utter Arctic isolation. Right. So there's this whole mini checklist with that movie of just things that, you know, I was to some extent because I was 19 or 20 or whatever, just rebelling against. Yeah. And that's how innovation comes about sometimes. Like people always like are quick to ask filmmakers and writers and whoever else about their influences. But when they say influences, they're talking about like the stuff you like. Well, that was all, all those movies I was rebelling against, I did like. Of course. I mean, I love Target Earth. I I think Target Earth is one of the most underrated movies I can come up with. But I feel like influences can be things that you don't like. Yeah. Like the things that you don't do are just as important as the things that you do do. It's like with jazz, you know, it's it's about the notes that you don't hit, you know? Yeah. So I always like, it's a shame that like when that question is asked, it's then not all right, but then what are the things that you're rebelling against with your style? Right. You know? Well, I always thought if I ever um, taught film, I would do a whole course just on movies that didn't succeed Mm. and just sort of taking them apart, doing what you do with um, like Citizen Kane in film class where you sort of take it apart and parse it and then put it back together and see why it works so well. Just do that with like John Carter, Mm. you know, or do that with Bride of the Monster and just take some of these these famous flops, showgirls, all them apart, and just sort of figure out, did anything go wrong? What went wrong? Where? And why didn't they connect? Showgirls is an interesting one because... You like that one a lot, right? I do. I really, really like it. I hadn't seen it until a couple of weeks ago. And it was because Brad watched it and just his enthusiasm for like the cinematography and the lighting. I knew that I was going to skin. Yeah, I think it. you two are crazy. I think it's a really bad movie. I think it's fantastic. I think the only place where it really falls apart for me is the third act. Yeah. Cause it just, and admittedly, like I think, um, Verhoeven and Esther Haas, they, they're not too big fans of like how it exactly ended up, but there are some tracking shots and like, uh, actually rather steady cam shots that are just fantastic in that film that just, there are these production value things that were kind of like what you assumed a movie would just do at the time that now are like an extreme rarity. Like a lot of the the big stage performance stuff in this now, it would just be very scaled back. Like you couldn't get away with the, the lavish stuff that they were doing. And I think when people were saying it was a bad movie when it came out, it was because a lot of the great things about it were just, oh yeah, it's a movie, so it's going to have that stuff. Right. Where it, like now, like you look at it, like nobody's doing I'll get any that of that way shit. about some of the '70s stuff. I mean, I'll watch stuff from the '70s that you know 
nobody really connected with, like something like the Nickel Ride. And which um, one's the Nickel Ride? That's uh, Jason Miller, who was, I guess, lead priest in The Exorcist, the young guy, not Max Max Sydow. Uh, it's like the only other movie I've ever seen him in, which is why I watched it. Robert Mulligan, who directed To Kill a Mockingbird, directed it, and it's just about. It was actually a huge influence on Green Brothers. It's just about this um, low-level mobster who's trying to seal a real estate deal for the mob, and it's like slowly going south. And he knows that if the deal gets fucked up, there's so much money on the line that he'll get killed. Mm. So it's about him trying to fix it. But it's all that really slouchy 70s sort of naturalism and just those um, handheld shots in the street that they just hold for like 45 seconds and let you just see, you know, like in this case, it's, I think, L.A., Mm. Just let you see sort of like, just like a slice of life of LA back in the seventies and these. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Just, and these really beautiful performances that are funny and sad at the same time and all that stuff that you took for granted in the seventies that now aren't the norm. Yeah. So when you see that sort of stuff, it it sort of leaps out and it'll it'll elevate a movie beyond how it would have been remembered. Yeah. I kind of want rehearsals to be remembered kind of like a uh, time capsule. Like, I, I remember, like, after I finished it, I was like, man, in another 10 years, like, what if I just did all these same people and just did it all the same way again? And oh, you should absolutely do that. 10 years, really you know, 10 years after that, like, just make it these little chapters is, in people's is it, lives. Is it Ellie doing the yoga in the park? Well, it's uh, Jolene doing dancing in yeah, the park. Yeah, just even if it's just that scene, just like every 10 <laughs> years, film that. Everybody loves that fucking scene. Everybody zeroes in on that scene. I, I love it, too. And like... It, but that's it, the one, you know, where you could do exactly that yeah. in exactly that spot again. Oh, that'd be beautiful. I would love to do that with her. She would be absolutely game. I've talked to her for a while about doing a dance film with her because it's so out of my wheelhouse yeah. and it's something that no, I just think would be... on board for that one. I would love to help shoot Wouldn't that, that be great? Yeah. Like, it was just her doing stuff. Well, it's like, like the combination of our two shooting styles. I think it would be really fun for that. Yeah, man. You're like long distant shots and my like weaving handheld stuff. I think that would go together very well for that particular project. Yeah. The only problem is she's out in LA now and dude, she's one of those people that if she were here, I'd be shooting stuff with her all the time. I just come up with like films based around her, like no disrespect to everybody else in that film who were fucking amazing. But you know, Jolene, obviously I worked with her on shredder and I worked with her on rehearsals. There's something that happens when I put her in front of, like my lens and my camera that just it becomes like this four-dimensional thing yeah know? no i had a friend uh college named uh connor who uh we shot so much shit in college and then out of college just he he was in uh the calm he was the lead mm-hmm. in it. and it was the same sort of thing where it just you know like our styles clicked exactly he moved to chicago now so we haven't done anything in years but like it just one of those ones where you don't even have to direct and you barely even have to write and they barely even have to act you just sort of yeah yeah operate on that sort of yeah that's the thing like I, I mean the whole goal for rehearsals obviously was that like i don't really tell anybody much i'm just like yeah just do whatever and i'll just find what looks pretty in the room and frame it around that and with her it was like barely need to send, say fucking anything to her yeah. like it was like as little as i had to say to, to everybody i could probably just like have just turned on the camera you know like yeah I, I barely need to say any words to her. I mean, when you're when you're shooting something, you can sort of tell when it's going well when you don't even really have to talk. Yeah. I mean, the best days looking back on both Green Brothers and The Calm and all the shorts. Actually, this is not true at all in theater, but in film it is true. Are the days where I like I don't remember even really talking to anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, you show up, you set up the shot, everybody has lunch, then you set up the shots, and you know, then you're done and it 
just sort of works. Yeah. And the thing like, uh, thing about bed, which I was thinking about pretty heavily as I was writing it is that it's kind of the third film in a trilogy because beds feature heavily in shredder. Spider-Man in it. Yeah. It's, it's got Sandman and Venom. Yeah. And it's, it's a little cluttered. But I think people yeah, will that's find the thing, it. You know, the it'll third be, ones you usually get too many superheroes. Yeah, it'll be it, it'll be a campy like thing people will revisit. You know. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was thinking about it in the terms of if the male character represents Shredder and the female character represents rehearsals. This is the film where it's oh, those two yeah. philosophies put together in a bed for 80, 90 minutes, and that was like a big impulse going forward. I was like thinking back on Shredder, like, all right, well, what's the philosophy I can grab from this movie and this male philosophy? And what's this philosophy I can grab from rehearsals as a female philosophy and putting them together in a relationship? Like, what would that be? And that was a great, like, you know, I wasn't trying to force a trilogy. It just sort of happened. Yeah. It was like, it was a trilogy I was making without realizing I was making a trilogy, you know? Yeah. See, I do a lot of sort of location-y type stuff. And uh, Green Brothers, I, I hope when it's said and done, I can look back on it and be like, that's the one where I got the Bronx, mm. you know? And then I can sort of move on to somewhere else. Because uh, the last play I did, very little, um, the production was torturous. But when I look back on it, I think that's the one where I, I got Florida. What, what was interesting to me about Southern Florida is that it's really a place where human beings aren't built to survive, the weather's not right and the animal life is too intense and it's it's not a place for people. Right. And that was a big thing in that play. And I think I really I, I nailed sort of the, the the weight of the heat and the weight of the uh the environment on people in that one. So I can look back on that and think, all right, maybe I'll come back to it an, another time if I if I get inspiration. But for now, I think I said what I had to say about Southern Florida. And I want when Green Brothers is done to look at it and be like, I think I said what I had to say about the Bronx. Mm. I'm pretty sure you're going to film very little one day. I just like when I read it, when you sent it to me initially, I was like, all right, this is a pilot for what will be my new favorite HBO show. <laughs> you know, like just the way that it ends and everything. It just ends in that way where I want a pilot to end. What very little is about. For those of you who don't know, which is probably almost every last one of you. <laughs> I would guarantee you pretty much all of our audience. Yeah. yeah. Although it did have a very successful run at the Fringe Festival. It, it sold out a few showings. But Very Little was a uh, a play I did in 2013 uh, set during the American Civil War about a little squad of Union soldiers who are on a reconnaissance mission. And they're just sort of little uh, farm boys from upstate New York. And they're kind of left and abandoned in the Florida Everglades. And they have no contact with the rest of the war. They're basically like a listening post to hear if, you know, to see if uh, Confederates are down there, if there's any sort of a, a resistance down there. And it's just about them kind of like interacting in this world that's sort of kind of slowly killing them. This environment that was back when uh, the Everglades still stretched to the edge of the state. And it was, uh, it, it's essentially a, a floodplain that's 110 degrees full of mosquitoes full of gators, full of panthers. It's crazy. There's panthers down there. Yeah. And it's about what happens when you put, you know, like fairly doofy regular guys in, in that setting. So um, the play, I could see myself revisiting it. it. It was, um, people have told me that they were glad it was a play because they feel like it really did something special on stage. But I, I just imagine some of those scenes, if you do, if you, if you just sort of like set up a camera and you're shooting on location and you just 
like watch how people even just walk through those flooded out hills mm. and and just the little uh you know like the little tiny hills that are maybe a foot high and you know that's the only place where you're not getting your feet wet you know that type of region of the everglades i think it could be an interesting project I don't know if anybody would finance it, but I yeah. think it would be a lot of fun. Have you thought of just publishing the play, by the way? I don't know if anybody would read it, to be honest. Well, I'm not sure if I'm done with that one. Yeah, I could come yeah, back to point. that one. There's uh, there's other things that I see for those characters in that, that kind of world I built. What would you recommend to me to watch for inspiration for Green Brothers? And then I'll do the same to you for bed. For editing it, you mean, for Green Brothers? Just for the whole, yeah, whole experience of it. Oh, man. Um... I mean, you've seen it before, but I feel like it's one of those movies that just ground you and reground you every time you watch it. But I would suggest Mikey and Nikki. Oh, yeah. I think that's just the I think definitive... I watched that three times during production. Really? Yeah. Okay. You could probably stand to watch it again because for one thing, it's so enjoyable. For the other thing, it's just like, it's it's always humbling for me to watch that movie. Yeah. It, it It's one of those movies where like, you just want to make what you make even better. Plus, in, in just technical specs with it, um, Mikey and Nikki was famously an improvised production. And like almost every line was yeah. different from every take to the next, which is, as an editor, a complete mess. You know, mm -hmm. you have to match continuity and all that. And uh, Green Brothers, we not to the same extent, but there's a lot of sort of um, takes where when you look at the takes, each one is different from the one before it and every angle is kind of different. And there's this just sort of like puzzle aspect to it. So to watch Mikey and Nikki and just to see how they they hid the jumps between those, you know, yeah. and, and to see how they, they leveled out the speed bumps, really. That's an incredibly edited movie. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine the task of editing that fucking thing. It's just staggering. All right, so what would you suggest for me to watch going into uh, shooting bed and rehearsing with bed I recommend and this one to everybody all the time. I would recommend The Human Voice, mm -hmm. 1966, one-woman show with Ingrid Bergman, directed by Ted Kotcheff. Who, uh, Ted Kotcheff, man, what a dude. Wake and Fright, First Blood. But uh, this he was really young when he directed it. He was uh, probably about our age, maybe even a little, young, a little younger. Mm. It's Ingrid Bergman. The whole thing is her on the phone with her husband trying to save their marriage. Oh, man. And it never leaves, it almost never leaves her eye line. Wow. And it's, it's over an hour. It's like a feature. And it's just beautifully done. It's a powerful, powerful little movie. Yeah, I'd love uh, to check John that Cocteau out. John Cocteau wrote the play that it's based on. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. I, I love adaptations of Cocteau. I love uh, Melville's uh, L'Enfance Terrible or yeah. however you do that. And you know, I this, just... is, this is up there with the best of them, I think. It, it was a TV production for this show called, um, I think, The Craft Television Theater, who, if you ever just want to like dive into an archive of mostly uncollected and mostly great filmmaking... That's the one to go to. It's mm. never been released. It's all just on YouTube. And you can see all these directors like Irvin, Irvin Kirshner did some of them. And oh, wow. Yeah, just these sort of interesting names that you don't see a lot of. And um, and I've, one of them was John Huston, I think. And they're, they're all very different. And, and some of them are sort of routine, but the great ones are just brilliant and really experimental. And, and it's it, it was a staggering little production. It was like two years in the mid-60s. That sounds great. Yeah, I can't wait to check that one out. All right, we're going to... Take a quick break. We'll be right back with some mailbag. See you soon. And now, a Smug Film Outtake. Welcome to the Smug Film Podcast. <coughs> <laughs> That's it. You uh, nailed it. That's our opening. A bit of phlegm. 
Might leave that in. Might take it out. <laughs> Let me do an extra one just in case. This has been a smug film outtake. Now back to the show. All right. So for this mailbag, we're actually going to revisit a question that we already kind of answered, but we've just been thinking about even more. And that was a question from Anthony. And he was basically asking us um, our thoughts on aspect ratio and films maybe not having the aspect ratio that would be best for it and how an aspect ratio affects a film. And we've been thinking about that one a lot. So we're just going to do another part of that. Why not? Right? Yeah. Well, we said last time we were talking about how um, science fiction feels like it's, it should be in widescreen. Yeah. It just feels intuitive for that, you know? And there's something interesting about that because I think there's also something kind of exasperating about bad movies in widescreen that you don't get with bad movies in like 4.3 or 16.9 because mm. they just feel, because they usually are, so it might be in tandem, but they just feel longer and just bigger and slower. Well, there are a lot of those like 60s action movies, so yeah. they're just like slogs. They're just like lumbering. And yeah. they're very wide. And like John Carter was like that. I pictured John Carter as just like endlessly wide, endlessly mm. long Thing where there was like probably a good hour and a half in it but you had to you know you had to tramp through the desert to even get to it so it'd be kind of interesting maybe to see something like john carter cut down to uh 185 well, maybe, that's, it's, maybe it's a little breezier yeah that's why it's great seeing stuff on like hbo or cinemax sometimes like there's that movie the other guys with will ferrell i love that movie yeah it's a it's a pretty fun movie but i just don't like seeing it super wide because it was shot 235 was it really? Yeah. But, I don't, I don't even but on that. TV, it's of course 16.9, which looks great for it. Like that's what comedy should be. Like you don't need like a super wide comedy of that nature pretty much. But like a couple of those will be like randomly super wide like uh, other guys. And I just don't get it. I'd love to see a super wide comedy in the style of like Airplane where there's stuff going on in the background all the time. See that would work for Where it's it. like a Where's Waldo yeah. almost. Like if I were doing a Where's Waldo movie, oh, it would be man. in the widest ratio possible. <laughs> And it would be, I would have, uh, I would use like, I would use like Greg Toland lenses so that everything is in, in focus all the time. And you would have, it, it would look like a Robert Altman movie is yeah. what it would look like. You, you'd have Basically, Waldo. It'd be Altman's Popeye, but yeah. it would be D'Amico's uh, Where's Waldo. Yeah, you'd have Waldo like four <laughs> rows back in a crowd, like talking to somebody. And that would be what you would hear. Yeah. But all across the rest of the, <laughs> was would just be stuff going on. It'd be like the Carlitos way, like the Palma shots where it's like yeah. Luis Guzman, like walking and him and Pacino walking down a street where it's like a billion extras, like just yeah, milling yeah, about. Yeah, just like a circus going on around them. I would love to see just right. straight up like 1975 Robert Altman <laughs> style Where's Waldo. <laughs> But right, not so, without that haze that Altman has. With yeah, sort of like a, no crystal clear. You'd have to, yeah, it'd have to be like pedantically clear. <laughs> like every line on every face, oh and my God. every row would have to be in perfect focus. It would be like the Heaven's Gate, like uh, yeah. Where's Waldo? People would be exhausted coming <laughs> out of it. <laughs> like just not for kids whatsoever. Yeah, <laughs> for very like, very like it would be like a dad's like favorite movie in yeah. all of the world. Like just a kind of a boring dad who just, just like swears one, by it. Or just like one group of guys in like Eastern Europe or France or something who base their whole <laughs> filmmaking style oh, on yeah. having seen it, you know? <laughs> so wait, what would the plot be for a Where's Waldo movie? Let's explore that a little bit. Everything I think of plot wise is just Carmen Sandiego. The plot True. of Where's Waldo was, he was trying to like pick up stuff, right? Or were you trying to pick up his dropped stuff? Yeah, he was dropping shit. All right, so let's reverse that. <laughs> Let's say he's got to like gather all this stuff. Okay. So you would, you could like 
I mean, you can even do it like Russian arc style where one <laughs> shot goes on for like 90 minutes. So it'd just be like a super wide, giant crowd shot. And he time traveled, didn't he? Sometimes he'd be yeah, like in yeah. ancient Egypt. So it'd be like sliders combined with Russian arc. <laughs> and he would just be in these huge rooms full of people. And you would lay his things like all around the room. And you would just watch him weave through the crowd, talk to people, backtrack, go forward, go to the wrong spot, maybe get chased out of somewhere. Just trying to get these like things, his like hat or his <laughs> artifacts, or whatever the fuck he was getting. Yeah, yeah. And then he would go through the sliders hole and come out. Then, you know, he's on the beach in the 20s. And, you know, you have the little shark in the corner who's making some joke and all the stuff going on. And yeah, he's you still can collecting. stick in these great little jokes and like, yeah. you could watch the movie like 15 times and always catch like a new joke in the background. Yeah. Like, it's like the, the obsession that people have with like those Harlem Shake videos where yeah. it's like a hundred people all doing a different dance. It would be like that sort of thing where like each person would be doing something very what, specific and strange what would be and interesting. great is if you could split the audio track and have like <laughs> seven or eight different like tracks and then give the audience like a button and they can press and switch through. <laughs> and like one would be on Waldo and one would be on like the bad guy. And then one would be just like the right corner and, you know, just go through them all and you can just, just like zero in on different spots of the canvas. This sounds like an amazing fucking movie. I can't believe we're coming up with this so organically right now. It's Dude, fucking it's, it's brilliant. It's just natural. It's what's meant to happen oh for this movie. Oh my God. And also like, you know, somebody else who would be great to be involved would be like the guy who did time crimes because that was essentially oh, yeah, the yeah, plot yeah. of time crimes. He's just like a guy going around trying to get shit together. I'd want him and I want Mike, Mike Figgis on my team and I want them <laughs> to just help me develop it. <laughs> yeah. And then what you could do They'd is be creative consultants. You could have Waldo constantly going one way. Like maybe Waldo's always going right to left, like Lawrence of Arabia. And then bad guy Waldo <laughs> always moves in the opposite direction. Yeah. What was his name? He was like, um, lot. Oddlaw, Oddlaw, that yeah. was his name. It was because it was Waldo backwards, and he and he wore yellow and black. Yeah, right? Oddlaw would go the <laughs> other way. So then you would you would sort of always, even though it was a wide crowd, you'd always be able to tell yeah where they were because you know most of the other people I'd have them just move sort of in the z axis, just front and back, and then you just see these two figures cutting through sideways. That way, your eye could always find them, even though it might take you a second because it is Waldo. Oh my god. And there, we need tons of people wearing red and white shirts like oh, yeah. throughout. We need False like Waldo decoys. <laughs> gotta have Waldo decoys. Yeah. And it has to be like a two and a half hour movie too. Oh, it's gotta be extraordinarily long. Yeah. I mean, it might be like intermission. Here's the question. Who would play Waldo? That's hard. All right. Well, let's think of like the look of Waldo. He kind of looks like, like Matt Smith. Or bit. no, Stephen Merchant. See, I was going to say Stephen Colbert. Oh, yeah. I can see Colbert. I was just picturing like a tall sort of gangly dude like Stephen Merchant. Yeah. But like with the attitude of Stephen Colbert. Yeah. You need like a... Or Steve Carell might be able to do it too, but he's probably too short. Yeah. Yeah. You need somebody tall who's going to sort of yeah. pop out. You need somebody with a little length. Maybe one of like the Eastern European guys in the uh, NBA. <laughs> one of those just like seven foot guys yeah. from like Russia. I like, I like Colbert, but how tall is Colbert? I don't know, but not... You know what it should be? Oddball choice. Pete Holmes, comedian. He's about 6'6". He's got brown hair. He kind of like parts it to the side sometimes. He'd be a great little Waldo. Well, not little Waldo. Huge Waldo. Huge Waldo. And then there was Dog Waldo. Yeah. Dog Waldo's really And there was the wizard. There was some wizard. There was was a wizard. Yes. (laughs) 
Yeah, like the blue... Uh, the wizard would be the one who would shoot you through time. Yeah. He would be in charge of the sliders portal. Well, the wizard's our anchor, essentially. Yeah, the wizard... De- it's definitely the wizard's movie in a lot of ways. <laughs> the wizard is us. He has the God's Eye perspective. He's the one who's shuttling you through time. Maybe it would be like Bill and Ted style, where you open with like an introduction by the wizard. Oh, yeah. And then you maybe you even see like a few minutes of like the wizard's world. And he's like, all right, let's check out this Waldo cat. And then... You know, he pops his staff down and you appear in, like, Waldopolis. And then Waldo, you know, he's just a schmo there. Doesn't matter. Yeah, and Waldo shouldn't ever know much. I feel like Waldo isn't a character that really knows God, entirely what's going on. God, it's too bad he's because I would say Charlie Day. Oh. <laughs> Maybe it's just got to be Charlie Day. You'd have to do some sort of Lord of the Rings digital stuff to make him, like, a seven-footer. Right. Because Charlie Day, that just innocent confusion. <laughs> yeah, Waldo definitely has to not know much. He's just kind of, like... Going along for the ride. Yeah, he's. I would say even the dog kind of knows more than Waldo. And I want to sense like that this is some eternal thing. Oh yeah. And that oh, kind absolutely. of the purpose of the story is that we have to break this sort of time loop. Like Waldo needs to find his fucking things so, so that, that we can, can get out of this fucking loop. All right, loop. let's rip off Bill and Ted again and say like Waldo is going to bring about world peace. He's going to like Mister right. Magoo it and like do something, and the world's going to be fine because of it. But Oddlaw maybe shot back in time to try to ice him. Right. So the wizard's trying to preserve the continuum. Mm-hmm. And maybe the like, maybe the thing that'll preserve the timeline like blew up. And because it was in, in zero space, it got shot through all these different parts of time space. And he needs his objects yeah. so that he so can So he's got to gather this, yeah. yeah, this like emerald of time preservation, which now that I think about it is Super Mario or uh, Sonic. Right. So he's got to put back together this like, this artifact that'll preserve the time stream. It always started off in the books. Like he had all these like bags and shit. Cause he's yeah. kind of like a tourist, but like as the pages would progress, he'd like lose some of his shit. And then by the end of the book, he's got nothing. And he's like, fuck, I got to go back and yeah, get like my Monsieur shit. Hulot. Yeah. He's just yeah. losing shit all over the place. Yeah. And then, so how it would happen is you'd have to start with Waldopolis, just normal, normalsville USA. Yeah. And then get shot way back in time. To like the dinosaur time and then just work your way forward mm. or maybe it no 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 let it, it just shouldn't scatter. be linear yeah it, let it's it just scatter because you want to be able to go to the future you gotta never know what's coming up you want to be able to go to a boat he maybe he's be on, on the like, titanic yeah he needs to be on like uh, the moon at some point because yeah. i think there's one book where he's like on the moon or whatever yeah Ooh, yeah Oh, oh that's so good. good. This is like the best movie. I hope somebody hears this fucking podcast and greenlights our version of Waldo just off of this. Yeah, listen, How beautiful I, would that be? I have what it takes to get this project to the finish line. Oh, yeah. We've got a cast lined up. I forget. I, it might have been Charlie Day. It might have been that comedian. I can't remember. Pete we got Holmes, a wizard. It's either Pete Holmes, Stephen Colbert, Charlie Day, something. We'll figure it out. Stephen March. Stephen Merchant's in the mix. Too. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll see them all. We'll see all of them. If I need to be, I'll be a stand-in for Waldo for like our Peter Jackson, like reel of like taking to studios like he did with Lord of the Rings where he was like, I can do this. Here's me like shooting stuff. Yeah. In this style, man, we, this would be amazing. And it would have to be like, it has to be one of those films where like, it's got like 49% on Rotten Tomatoes. Who's the guy who wrote the Clue movie? I would get him on board. I get the screenwriter for Clue to help us sort of bring it. He'd probably be good. Bring yeah. it into production. So that's our dream team. Oh, man. Screenwriter of Clue, Mike Figgis, and director of Time Crimes. Mm. There's our creative consultants right there. Oh, man, this movie rules. Waldo, it's happening. Yeah, Waldo. What should we say, 2017? Yeah. 
Maybe 2018, let's give ourselves time to have a nap first. And you know what? We better fucking grab this because I can see an inferior Spielberg Tintin-esque version of it coming out. Where Tintin he, ruled, though. I know you love Tintin, but Waldo can't be fucking CG. It can't no, be rotoscoped. It can't, it can't, it can't be any of that mocap shit. It's got to be a real, real man, man. Real surroundings. Yeah. That's the only way to do it. Danny DeVito for the wizard. <laughs> I like that. I like that. I think the wizard was uh, like lanky and tall. I think like that artist probably could only draw like lanky and tall it's people. It's fine. We'll mix it up. You can't have yeah. everybody be lanky and tall. Listen, no, whoever was drawing Waldo, you can't, you can't do that. He drew everybody as like fucking lanky and shit. So we're going to mix it up. We'll, we'll preserve that for Waldo, for canon, but the wizard's going to be, it's going to be DeVito. And Oddlaw. He's going to be a roly-poly Wait, is it guy. a dual role for Oddlaw? Ooh. Ooh, that's a good question. There's two ways he could go. He could be the Wario or he could be like Mirror Universe Waldo. You know, he could look just like him. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh, I don't know. It's a tough We're going to have to consult with the screenwriters about that. I think there's a couple ways he could go. I want to hear more opinions on that before we decide. We, we definitely need to talk to our consultants. Yeah, everybody out there, just let us know. Should Oddlaw be sort of like a reverse Waldo or like kind of the opposite of Waldo? By that, I mean... Should he be Waldo with a different color palette or should he be well, like Oddlaw, fat and short and everything Waldo is? Yeah, Oddlaw traditionally was yellow and black, I remember. And I think, uh, you know, my gut says dual role. Yeah, mine too, to be honest. Yeah, but I'm open to yeah different stuff. Yeah, I mean, we'll see what happens. Oh, man. We'll play it loose. So much for answering the aspect ratio question. Yeah. Well, <laughs> when things get this interesting this fast, you know, you just got to follow the... Uh, it escalated. Yeah. Oh, man. I wish we were making that movie, like, tomorrow. <laughs> oh, Lord. I don't, want, I don't want this podcast to end because I don't want to go back to the world where we're not making that movie. I don't want to live in that world. It's not for me. I guess we got to give Anthony, like, a consultant credit or something. Oh, yeah. He's getting, like, uh, associate producer. Some sort of meaningless, like, yeah. role, but just sounds cool. Best boy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Well, Anthony, thank you very much for that question. We promise that maybe in a later date we'll explore the yeah, aspect we'll ratio back. more. But uh, thank you for uh, that because or else we wouldn't have come up with Waldo the movie. Yeah. 2018. Keep your eyes peeled. Yeah. We just keep pushing back. 2019. Be, yeah. <laughs> that could be the tagline for the uh, for the promo stuff, the teaser. Keep your eyes peeled. Mm. Or, you and know, you, something about looking out for him. And you know they're going to want to make it 3D, but we're not making it fucking 3D. Ooh, I don't know. Good 3D could really take this over the top, but like James Cameron 3D. But it, you lose the clarity, you know? You didn't in uh, Avatar. I mean, it was pretty clear, but it would have to be really top end, like Cameron straight out of the underwater sub 3D, mm -hmm. you know? Like if anybody else is doing it, I don't want to be Well, involved. maybe by the time that, uh, you know, we actually make the film, maybe 3D will be even better and it'll be just it'll be a no-brainer. My fear is that if we start doing that, Cameron might scoop this project out from under us. Yeah. I don't want to see his version of fucking Waldo. He doesn't get it like we get it. it Look, has man. Back off. <laughs> this is ours. Spielberg, Cameron, Jackson, if you're listening, please just let us have this one thing. Yeah. Back off with it. This is ours. I know you're taking notes right now. Yeah. Let us do our fucking Altman slash, you know, Hulo kind of thing. Yeah. Is that how you say it, Hulo? That's how I always said it, yeah. but um, I don't speak French. What's that guy's name again? The the director Tati. 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 It, it has to be like kind of like a Tati. Yeah, thing. it really does. It needs those kind of Tati like huge 
like big shot like jokes where like yeah. people are just walking by and shit. Yeah, and like it's got to be a little bit Chaplin Keatney too. Yeah, there's got to be a lot of that sort of uh, comedy of just people walking through space. Yeah, and you know things falling at the right time, and you know people on ledges and all that sort of sort of stuff. Oh, I love this movie. I'm not seeing a lot of dialogue in it. Really. No. I'm seeing sort of functional, like people, like wizards telling you where to go somewhere, but in like a funny way. And then, then the like rest the, is action. The rest of the dialogue is just kind of like, you have to like listen on headphones for yeah. like some of it and you'll pick up like little weird things people are saying yeah. that rule. Maybe Waldo should be completely silent. It could work. Everybody else talks around him. Yeah. Everybody always just constantly and cuts him off. And a fire soundtrack. I mean, that music's got to be unreal. Who do we need for like a, like an original score? Like maybe like John Bryan or something. Yeah, that could be interesting. Maybe no. Uh, uh, the guy who did Up and Lost and Star Trek. What was oh his name? yeah, Michael Giacomo, Giacomo or something. Yeah, him. Yeah, we need him. I think that's his name. If I fucked it up, whatever. We definitely but... need him because that oh, one, yeah. that one thing from the Star Trek soundtrack where they're coming to the Enterprise for the first time. All right, he's our guy. That's what I hear. That. Da, 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 da. Yeah, that's that's our guy. That's him. Oh man, he would love it too. And you know what? Pixar back off too, because I know they're gonna want to fucking do that shit. Oh yeah, they're they're smell uh, the money. They're in chomping the air. at the fucking bit on that I've one. I've had enough of them. And they'll make Tom Hanks be Constantly fucking Waldo. Stealing my projects. Yeah, they'll use Tom Hanks as Waldo, and it'll just be like they just be plugging in Woody. Tom Hanks know? is too old, but Tom Hanks, I would say, young Tom Hanks would have yeah. been a perfect Waldo. About see, 1985, just his, Tom Hanks would have been perfect. They'll just stick his voice in on the CGI. Yeah, that's no good. Fuck that's you no guys. Good. This is our Waldo. It's a people's Waldo. <laughs> and it has to be like G. It has to be fucking oh, G rated. Yeah. Stone cold, adorably We're putting, family. Not, not fucking PG. G. Yeah. Nothing objectionable in this For movie. For general audiences. Whatsoever. Yet, at the same time, no kid in their right mind would want to see it because it would just seem like an old person movie. It has to have that Popeye Altman quality. And I do not like that movie, but you're absolutely right. It needs that flavor to it. It needs those kind of villagers, you know? Yeah. Oh, man. It needs good villages. Ooh, yeah. All right. That about wraps it up. That was a very interesting second half of an episode. Yeah, I'm going to get to my computer and start typing this out. Oh, my God. That was... You just witness history here, folks. If we end up making a fucking Waldo movie, this podcast is going to be one of the most talked about you know, pieces of recorded history ever. It's kind of like... If the suits let it happen, man. Yeah. It's kind of like... powers that be. Kevin Smith with Tusk, except this is like a huge movie. This is like... Like, Waldo is like... You know, that's your tentpole film. Write your congressman. Yeah, man. Ooh, I like this. Because, you know, the whole thing with Tusk was that it came about because they, they right. spitballed ideas on a podcast and then they came up with the movie. But this is way better. Our Waldo's way better. I mean, we could have a walrus in this too. Yeah, we. Could. What's stopping us? There's room for many animals. He's definitely going to be in the Arctic at some point. We'll throw oh, yeah. a walrus in. And we need to get real animals too. Yeah, a lot of wranglers. I've seen a lot of Doctor Doolittle with the animals. Yeah, like just sort of jaunty animals. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing a lot of animal wranglers needed on set. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of animals being wrangled in frame. Mm. You know, like dudes walking by with you know like their horse team. Yeah. And it's just sort of like jaunty and maybe the horses, they're sort of fighting with their horses because they're always trying to pull a horse and he's not coming in all those little books. Mm. Maybe there's like a mouse by the horse. Oh, yeah. He's scared of it. Lots of mice and horses and like little big kind of thing. We need little animals and big, big animals. Ones. Yeah, little and big. Yeah. Maybe the walrus has like a little penguin buddy. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, all the animals need to have like a joyous quality to Maybe them. Maybe the penguin steals the little artifact and waddles away. Yeah. Well, and there's he, the um, and, and and just when Waldo thinks he's gonna get it, the walrus like slumps out of the water and stands between him and his little penguin friend. Yeah, there's this great like hackles like woo. There's this great videos online where it'll be like a dog with like a cat like on it, and then like that's a essentially mouse on the, the tone I want for the entire thing. Yeah, a, a dog with a cat laying on it with a mouse laying on it. Oh yeah, that's that's basically the tone for the entire picture. Yeah, that's our sense of humor for the whole fucking production. That's our uh, that's our vision board. That's what we're talking about with like G-rated just enjoyment. That's our sizzle reel. It's just the video of a yeah. dog with a cat sleeping on it with a mouse sleeping <laughs> yeah. on it. See, I want for this film, like, remember those, like, Christian sites where they would rate things on based on how Christian the film was? Oh, we need a 10. This needs to be a perfect, like, score on that. Nothing object... The any, score should just be a little picture of Jordan dunking. Yeah, no, like, no, like, cameos of, like, Seth Rogen or whatever, like, smoking weed or whatever. We're not doing that thing where, like, you revisit old stuff and you, like, update it and you make it this, like, no, Gen X anything, stoner thing. No, if anything, this is going to be less objectionable than Waldo the Book. Yes, the Waldo the Book is, like, the PG-13 version yeah. of what we're trying to do here. But yeah. there should be cameos. There should be, like, if you look really carefully, you can see, like, Jack Nicholson really far oh, in totally. the background yeah. or whatever. Yeah. I love that. I love people being in things, but you can barely see them. That would be great. Tina Fey, she's got to be in it somewhere. <laughs> Just that whole sort of like. But nobody gets a close up. Anybody who was ever in a Muppets movie. Yeah, nobody gets a close no, up. No, nobody gets a close up. But a anybody who was ever in the Muppets movies. Mm -hmm. Mark Hamill. Yeah. Remember he, when he was on Muppets that time? Just that whole sort of breed. Yeah, it's somebody like closing windows. Maybe the Muppets. Like on an apartment. Yeah, we, we could have the Muppets in there. Maybe one of the locations is backstage at the Muppet Show. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. All right, this is the greatest episode ever. Yeah. All right, we're going to close it out. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't signed up for Smug Film Club, sign up. You get free stuff. You get bonus podcast episodes. You get all sorts of stuff. We're going to be sending out some commentaries soon. We're sending out, like, commentaries where you can, you know, just download them, put them on your iTunes. And then while you're watching a movie on your computer, you just listen along with us. And it's like we're all watching the movie together. It'll be amazing. And all you have to do is sign up is... Just give us your name and email address. You can sign up on the smugfilm.com page. We only email you when we send you free stuff. We don't send you, you know, updates of like, oh, an article went up. Oh, a podcast went up. We know you already know all that stuff. You're like keeping abreast in other ways like Facebook and Twitter. So it's not for that. It's just for free gifts for you. So sign up if you haven't already. Thank you all for listening. Any parting words? John D'Amico. Uh, no, keep an eye out for Green Brothers, keep an eye out for Bed, keep an eye out for Waldo. That's right, Waldo 2021, right? Uh, 2025. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks guys, see you soon. Bye.